Hello, everyone. This is the Network Collective Community Roundtable podcast, and I'm your host, Jordan Martin. Now, all you have to do is take a look around you, and it becomes obvious that people just simply don't like change. Conversely, all you have to do is look around you, and it becomes obvious that our industry is in an almost constant state of change. So how do we reconcile these things? How can we adapt to the ever-changing world around us? And how can we utilize this knowledge to be more effective influencers of change within our organizations and within our jobs? So before getting started, I wanted to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's episode. Uh, first up is Blue Cat Networks. Blue Cat is a first-time sponsor, but a longtime friend of the show. And they're putting together some great content and a great community surrounding the topics of DNS, DHCP, and IPAM. Also sponsoring the episode today is a returning sponsor, Unimus. Unimus produces an easy-to-use but powerful network automation and configuration management solution. It's designed for fast and easy network-wide deployment. And we'll be sharing more details about each of our sponsors later on in today's episode. So joining me today for the conversation is Nick Baraglio and Kevin Myers. These guys are so often guests on our show. I think that they're just taking up residency now. <laughs> so Kevin, man, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Um, thanks for being here. Great to uh, great to be back on the show and see you again. Yeah, likewise. Uh, Nick, how are you doing? Pretty good. Also great to be uh, to be back on. Thank you for having me. It's always good to have you two on. Uh, So, you know, the topic we're talking about today is, is change. And like, like many of the recent episodes on network collective, this really got sparked by a conversation in the network collective slack. Uh, The conversation has a bit of an IPv6 bend to it. I think that that was kind of the, the basis for the conversation when we started. Um, but I think that, you know, like we use IPv6 because that's the change the industry just continually likes to avoid. (laughs) But uh, the avoidance of change isn't something new. So, Nick, I want to start with you. Um, do you think that our industry has a unique aversion to change, or do you think it's a human nature thing? I say, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so, but you know, by by human nature, as you said, um, people are have have a innate fear of failure, and given the visibility, especially in networking and IT in general, but really in networking, the visibility of a mistake being made in, you know, in the network that causes an interruption um, is, I think, a huge driving factor in resistance to change. There's also a level of, I know this thing, whatever it is, I am the resident expert, and my ego is very tightly coupled with this you know, expertise that I hold. And this thing over here is very different. I don't know anything about it. And so, you know, again, that fear of not understanding something and not being perceived as perhaps an expert, I think is a lot more prevalent than we care to admit. I think that's, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. And I think we're going to talk about uh, a lot of those things. I think that are those inhibitors of change at some point on the show, but maybe, maybe we should start out by looking at some examples. So we've made a claim here that we're resistant to change, but are we really? So like, what are some examples? What are some of the things in our industry where, where we think, Kevin, I'm going to, I'm going to point to you first here and see what's what's the thing that first comes to mind when you think about networkers not adopting change? Um, well, since I know we're going to get into IPv6, I'll give you something a little bit different for variety. Multi-vendor. Multi-vendor has been a massive resistance to change in network engineering specifically, because we're so used to vertically integrated solutions that you get a box that's got a brand on it, and that's what you get for everything. And I think once upon a time, there was a lot of validity to that. When networking companies were in the early days, you know, we were still working out a lot of the standards, and we had to work through a number of interop issues. And so people tended to buy from the same vendor because they found that the code worked, and the code was not terribly divergent across the product lines, which is not where we are now. That's a good one. Um, Nick, I, I, I'm, I'm going to point to you because I think that, you know, <laughs> you started this conversation and, and you clearly, you, you have this feeling about IPv6. And so why don't, we, why don't we go there? Yeah, I mean, I think that IPv6 is a big one. And that is, you know, sort of the, I like to champion that because I really do believe that it's sort of a necessary future. Um, and I think that this is a strange one in particular because, the resistance to the change is in a very acute place. 
Um, V6 is really all over the place, uh, and it has been for quite some time. Like cellular networks, been at the very least dual stacked. In some cases, V6 only for quite some time. And if you go by node count, that's enormous. That's global, and it's enormous. Um, it's been around in you know like smart metering and uh, backbones. You know the the hello world of IPv6 is turning it on in your backbone because it's very easy to do, right? Where it starts to get complicated is where you start touching end host clients um, that you don't control or that maybe you do have some level of control over, and that's where we tread very clearly into the enterprise space. And as you and I have talked about, Jordan, many times, the driving factor of V6 um, and the resistance to it in many cases, uh, or at least the, the one that's said out loud, is that there's no business reason to implement it. Um, and while I think that's largely true, I think that's a thin veneer that, you know, is kind of an excuse. Um, so I, I'll agree with you. And I don't want to turn this into the IPv6 show. I think that we we generally both agree and are going in the same direction. I think we rub a bit on on a couple points. And the, and the point is, I think it's two-factor. I think it's economics, right? I think that there's not a, a big economic driver. We still have – it's not costly enough yet that it's forcing people to make decisions. And I think a lot of it is related deeply to this conversation that we're having right now. We have something. It works. Why spend the money on changing it? I think that that is a very rational conversation to have. It's not an irrational conversation. So I don't I don't begrudge uh, enterprises because they're having these rational conversations. But where I think that it falls down is because enterprises have not generally, I hate painting with broad brushes because I know there's going to be someone who disagrees with me because they have the, the unique example that sits in the corner case, but they generally have not invested in engineering. And we've had this conversation a lot on Network Collective as well. And so there's not a team of people who are back trying to figure out what the next thing is. And, right. I, and I think that one of the things that we're going to talk about in this is firefighting. That's how most enterprises operate. And when you're firefighting, it is hard to implement change because change is risky. And so not only do we have the motivator from a financial perspective to say, hey, there's nothing financially motivating. Even when you look to the future, you say, I don't have the time and resources to put into this to make this change less scary. So until it becomes the thing that is the fire that I have to fight, it's just not going to be the thing that I put attention to. And so I think it's a dual home to problem. And I'm not saying it's right because I agree with you 100%. Like it is a it is a future that we need. <laughs> There's no question about it. Like and, and the sooner you do it, the less painful it's going to be, the less costly it's going to be. But at the same time, when you have a limited number of resources and a finite amount of budget and networking isn't your business, all of a sudden you know, finding a way to put that as the priority becomes a challenge. And I think that that's, that's there. So I, I want to add another one to this list though. And so that is right, right before oh, you do ahead. that, I want to, I want to change the topic of the thing that we're talking about. So the same thing can be said, not just about IPv6. That's just sort of my personal, you know, mission. You can say the same thing about SDN. You can say the same thing about automation and you can take enterprise out of it. That's just the example that's in my head, right? The engineering is constantly keeping the wheels on the bus and a shift happened that, um, you know, at some point networking when I started was a novelty, right? It was a convenient thing to be able to email something or whatever. And then it's seemingly overnight, although I know it didn't really happen like this. It became like electricity. When it doesn't work, people can't do their jobs. And so I think that has contributed significantly to the re resistance to change. And it's not exclusive to just protocols or whatever, because with that shift from, you know, hey, this is a novelty thing that is cool to have. And now it's sort of, you know, now it's like this is a core part of how our business happens. The engineering scale didn't go up enough to meet that level, right? Just like you said, now it's on constant wheels on the bus mode. And I think that is the other huge contributor to the resistance, right? Because there just aren't resources to do it, to think about it. That, that's a really good point. So I think there's a couple more, you know, examples. I think, uh, Nick, you just brought them up uh, very quickly. Um, the one for me, I, I think that really sticks out is, is layer two adjacency, 
Um, we love to hold on to this idea that apps need to be L2 adjacent. And because of that, we end up with like some of the craziest, most compli complicated, convoluted, uh, ticking time bomb type designs. Um, I can see, you know, Kevin smirking at me as he does all L2 extension all the time. But I know we agree on this, that once you start bringing applications yep. into it, it gets more complicated. Yeah, it's, um, I'm and, with you on hosts. It, it's the <laughs> other systems. Routers tend to, there are some good reasons to to join routers over layer two, but yeah. Sure, absolutely. We get two different worlds, and we we can we're going to debate that forever, Kevin, for sure. Probably um, so. Now, in here we have the uh, software-defined networking. Um, just in general, there was a resistance uh, for that. I think that there was a lot of, you know, I think we're talking about this too—the marketing hype around it, and then just slow adoption, and 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 people being hesitant. Um, and then automation is one more topic that we I think that we've identified as kind of being one of those things that has been a slow uptick that we're seeing speed up now, but generally. Uh, you hear a lot of reasons why not, <laughs> right? And some of those reasons I think are justified and some of those reasons are, are, are just fear of change. And so like, let's, let's take a step there and, and let's say, or ask the question, are there justifiable reasons, you know, to, to, to kind of resist change? Do you guys think that there's a, you know, there are some reasons why resisting change and maybe not jumping to the newest thing is a good idea. Yeah, I'm going to I mean, as a business owner, I'm, I'm going to give you one big one money. I mean, as much as we love to revel in the tech and and the, you know, in looking at a solution that is beautiful and elegant and forward thinking in tech, does it sell, help you sell more widgets? Because if it doesn't, who cares? And I know that's probably odd coming from a network engineer, but I, you know, in straddling those two worlds, there's some times where I have to say, this would be great and this could be great. and We should totally do this. But when I look at how the impact it has on selling widgets, who cares? Right. So that would, that would be justified. Like you're, you're taking a look, you're doing the ROI and saying, yeah. if I invest this money, I'm not going to get the same amount out of it. Exactly. And I think in conjunction with that, and I know this is going to sound weird coming out of my mouth, but I actually agree with that, right? I'm the first guy in line, the first person in line to want to play with the shiny thing and to actually try to use it in production. I've done that with pretty much everything that has come up that you know made you it to use everything yeah like, i mean insert, I insert the vendor and it's in your network somewhere right or in my yeah. lab at the very least yep. and you know i've run very large very high capacity open flow networks right that's fairly uncommon in production you know but i think that understanding the the shiny thing and the new thing that is you know supposed to cause change and being able to adapt it to a support model are very different things, right? I've done some, and this is true in the service provider world, and maybe especially in the service provider world, right? Because when your, your gear is outside, it needs to be easy to get, you know, it needs to be easy to manage. And so you, you don't jump to the newest thing because that will increase the amount of truck rolls. Um, as much as it may be marketed to, in a way that is, you know, oh, this is a, the thing that solves all the problems. You know, when the rubber hits the road, if you even if it solves one problem and creates two more, it's or even one more, it's not worth the change. I'll give you one really good example of that, Nick, that I think is something that I really thought would change and it never has. And that's IPTV. In the service provider world, we started out with PIM Sparse. And that's the way we built broadcast television over IP networks for over a decade. And that's the way we'll probably do it for another decade because it is one of the single most complex systems I've ever worked on because all the pieces have to be orchestrated very tightly. They've got to be tested and retested to make sure everything works together. And once you get it there, there's no great benefit to change. And people say, oh, why don't you use source-specific multicast? And like, yeah, that'd be great, but you know, do I want to go invest another 3,000 hours of engineering to make sure that, you know, I can go make it all work when PIM works? And, you know, that's another good reason, you know, not to get into the overlay situation. That's another good reason why we have things like overlays. You know, there's sometimes where I build an overlay for IPTV of layer two, where we'll hang routers off of a layer two network to simplify an IPTV architecture, because otherwise the support going forward in newer technologies like segment routing or other things to get multicast through is really, really hard. So, you know, those are good solutions where, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting some technical debt and you're getting some complexity, but at the end of the day, trying to get something like IPTV pushed forward into a new architecture is it's really hard and it's really costly. And at the end of the day, it's really not worth it. 
Yeah, and yeah. I hear this. I, what I'm hearing, and let me try to rephrase because I think that you know, somebody just to you know reiterate the point. Th- a vendor's idea of what's good for you doesn't always match what your idea of what's good for you is. You have to measure between the two, right? You yep. have to say, you know, like it's great that you know product X does X, Y, and Z. Like that, it's great that it does that, and I'm sure that the vendor is very proud of them doing that. And maybe if we were starting from scratch, that would be something that would be valid and whatever. But right now I don't have problem X, Y, and Z, right? I'm solving problems A, B, and C. And I don't need to solve X, Y, and Z because it's not my network. It's not what I'm doing. And so running into the newest thing, this often becomes a challenge though, because they will deprecate (laughs) the thing that solves A, B, and C naturally. And then you're kind of forced into change when you don't want to. That's a whole other show. <laughs> like I don't, don't even know. It, it is. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna loop yeah. back briefly to my multi-vendor model. That's why I'm a big fan of multi-vendor. If you embrace a multi-vendor ecosystem, you have more control over that problem. Right. That makes sense. And so I think a lot of this is that, you know, maybe one of the justifiable reasons for change also is, you know, we our our industry is not unique in this, but we love our marketing hype cycle. The, the new thing, whatever the new thing is, man, it gets pushed super, super hard as the thing that is going to solve all of your problems. And rarely, when you implement it, does it actually solve all of your problems? And so I think there, there's a healthy dose, a healthy dose, and we're going to talk about cynicism later in the show. There's a healthy dose of cynicism of saying, you know, there's a justification for looking at real facts rather than marketing data about what A, whether or not I need this, B, whether or not it actually does what it's supposed to do, Right. But that gets us back to our point, Nick, about engineering. To do that, you need time in a lab to make that happen. And most enterprises aren't. So we're depending on the the word of people who have different motivations than us, whether that's a reseller or whether that's the vendor directly. Their motivation is to sell gear and to sell services and to sell all the other stuff. And, and you, as a person who implements it, doesn't have time to validate that it's going to actually solve your problems. And that's a challenge. And I think think that exacerbates other fundamental problems too, right? So you have have this lack of an independent validation source, right? Where someone is going to go and they're going to build this thing in a lab. They're going to look at it with a completely unbiased opinion. They're going to try to make it work. And they're going to say, here are the pros and here are the cons. Right. That's pretty hard to find. I mean, and that's where you see things like and and the reason that and this is the reason that people build home labs. Right. So you have a home lab. Right. You're a ambitious engineer and you want to do some of those things. So you'll be able to do 30 percent of them. Right. Your home lab. You're not going to be able to put 100 gig switches in your lab. Right. To to investigate unless you are independently wealthy or something. But like you're Kevin. (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, but, yeah, yeah. You know, that's I, I guess I have a few toys. Right. That's a couple toys. Like, for for a typical like engineer that's working at a company, it doesn't really matter what the company is or what the product is. Even even if the product is the network, you you may not have that resource. And so you do these things on your own, and then that lends to burnout because you're doing work and then you're doing work. And so I think there's there's a huge and I now realize I'm going down a bunny trail right now, but like there's a huge amount of interdependency with all of these things that sort of it's a feedback loop of, well, if I don't have time to do this thing, I'm going to do it on my own. And sooner or later, you're going to get burned out. And then when you're burned out, you're like, I don't have time to learn all this stuff. So I'm just going to stay where I'm comfortable. And then resistance to change happens. That's okay, not always how it works, but that is a that is a very real thing. So as far as that it was a rabbit trail, it's an absolutely perfect segue. I think that, you know, the next thing we want to talk about are some of the, the okay, so we've made the decision that we, we might want to change, right? So what are the, some of the things that we can do to help facilitate change ourselves? And, and for me, the very first thing I put on this list is attitude. Um, and so what you just described, this whole cycle of burnout, of, of needing to, to go way above and beyond to be able to validate systems, to build skills, to get comfortable, uh, it leads to very cynical engineers. And I think that a lot of the cynicism in our industry is deserved. It's been earned. And I say that, like, there's, there is a very valid cynicism. I think my, my critique here is I feel like we glorify it. I feel like we we lift up this idea that when you become old, grizzled, and cynical, that means you really know what you're doing. 
you've really felt the pain. And I'm like, huh, like that seems like a great way to get completely stuck in the mud, you know? And I, I've, I've had conversations and some of them, I mean, to be honest with you guys, where it's like, you know, like a new idea comes out that's helpful. And I even see the response be like, well, that's just what we've always done. And it's just repackaging some stuff like this. We refuse to look at like what the, what the value proposition really is or something because we're just cynical about the way that it is. And I'm, I'm right there with you. So when I'm pointing the finger elsewhere, I'm pointing it right back at myself too, because I am more cynical than I should be often. And I think it's a problem for our industry. And so I really think that if you want to help facilitate change, if you want to be a person who's open to change, the first place, it's going to sound very cliche and Hallmark card, look inside, right? Like figure out who you are and try not to be the cynic. Try to look at everything um, with with an open mind because there really are a lot of interesting things that are happening and there's interesting solutions. But at the end of the day, like you need to be open to considering it. Um, and if you immediately dismiss it, you'll never be open to change and you're just going to perpetuate that 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 same idea. Yeah, and we all, we all kind of do it, right? And we do. I think my, my answer to that, and I try to tell myself this every day, and I try to live this way as much as possible is don't tell me why something won't work. I don't, that's easy. Like that's a, that, that is a, that's an easy door, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me what will work about it. Tell me how we could make it work. Don't tell me that it won't. Right. Cause that's right. You know, this is the whole, don't, don't be a naysayer. Like you come in and say right. what it can do, how it would work. And if you're not going to go that direction, what is so much better about what you have today? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you should be able to clearly articulate that. It's not just about being negative about something the moment is presented. It's about taking an honest look at what it does and saying, you know, it's completely possible in our list of, of justifiable reasons to resist change. A lot of those things are absolute real. Maybe the money we invest wouldn't get us our money back. Maybe, you know, what's being sold isn't really what's being delivered. Maybe it's a problem that I don't actually need to solve. Like there's a lot of reasons why you can look at the thing and end up with the same result of I don't want to go down that road, but you've given it a fair shake. You've looked at it. You, you said it's there. I think one of the other things is confidence. And so when I say this, I think that it's not just um, confidence. It's really what this is, is it's, it's avoiding fear. I think a lot of times when we talk about change, it's the fear of change. And why do we fear change? Well, we're, we're fearing outcomes we're fearing you know skills that we don't have we're fearing the unknown and ultimately i really think this gets resolved by knowing the fundamentals and this is one of those soapboxes that i will never ever ever get off of like we need to understand the fundamentals you can only abstract fundamentals when the fundamentals are so reliably abstracted that you never have to think about them that's when we can stop learning fundamentals but we're not there yet and we're a long way away from that being true understanding routing switching tcp ip all the components that build a network and how reachability really happens because the reality is and we say this all the time rfc 1925 rule 11 we point to it all the time nothing is new <laughs> nothing is new it's a rehash of an old idea i don't care what it is if it's being introduced a really genuinely new idea in networking is incredibly rare i do you guys agree with that statement yeah, no, I'll, I'll die on the hill with you on routing, switching fundamentals and understanding how networking works because we're always going to need that. I don't ever foresee a time where we're not going to need that. And that's something that I push my engineering team on hard and especially going back to the statement you made of being afraid to change because I push my engineers all the time and say, look, I don't have all the ideas. And I know there's I spend a lot of time leading my team, but if you have a good idea, I can't always promise you that we're going to put it into the network that we're working on, but I want to know about it. And I want to kick it around the team and I want to push for change and open ideas. And that's something that I won't say I, I'm always a hundred percent not guilty of as far as, you know, saying, no, let's not change. Let's do it this way. But I always try to push myself and my team to do that because I feel like we are a product of the environment we come up in. And I know the environment I came out of, which was mostly the telco space, which was my first introduction to real networking. I did general IT and, you know, we talked about jack of all trades recently when you guys were talking about the foundational stuff. And I learned a lot of great things that helped me out. But when I got into real networking, there was this, you know, you really, you don't have an option to fail. You don't have an option to not know. If you don't know, you're going to go find out. And if we have to go build this thing that we don't have, you're going to go find out. And that was the attitude. And really, I will say the crucible that I went through, because when we were dealing with things like 911, 
in critical life services, there, there was a huge pressure on us to figure these things out because very quite literally, you know, we would get the speech that, you know, there are lives at stake here. If you don't have 911 up and somebody has a heart attack, you know, they could die because they can't pick up the phone. And that was 10 years ago. We have mobile phones now, and maybe that's not quite as true, but there was definitely an idea that, you know, there was, it, this was very critical and you needed to be able to figure it out. And so that's the attitude that I lo- I took with a lot of things. And then I moved into the enterprise space and it was a very different world for me um, because a lot of the cynicism that we, we talk about, I, I really first started encountering that there. And I did my best, at least, you know, when I was working with my team, because I ran a team of enterprise engineers to say, let's not always say no, let's, let's, the answer cannot always be no, the answer has to be yes, at some point, because we're here to run a business. And and yes, I realize that we don't always want to do things a certain way. And we don't like this, we don't like this. But if we don't innovate, and we don't adapt, and we don't find ways to do this, then, um, you know, it's nobody's going to be needed. You know, if you're not bringing value, then your role is not going to be needed. And I think that is is a very important thing that I have tried to continue throughout the years with teams that I've been a part of. And now that I run my own team, keeping that moving forward. So I want to take a moment to tell you more about today's sponsors. And first up is Blue Cat Networks. If networks are your thing, and I imagine they are if you're listening to the Network Collective podcast, you should definitely consider joining the hundreds of network infrastructure and DNS experts in the network VIP community. It's a community of IT practitioners driven by shared passions and frustrations about managing critical DNS, DHCP, and IP address management challenges, which there have certainly been no shortage of this year. Now, you'll get membership to a Slack community of peers that share candid insights and advice, as well as exclusive access to a series of monthly interactive Zoom roundtables. For example, coming up here soon on December 8th, they're digging into the topic of why the cloud and the data center just can't get along. And this panel is actually going to have some folks from the network collective community as well. Uh, So you can join this network VIP community and register for the next roundtable by going to bluecatnetworks.com slash certainty. Again, that's bluecatnetworks.com slash certainty. So it's a fairly common task to need to find specific configuration items across the network. Things like show me all switch ports on VLAN 1000 or find all firewall rules for a particular subnet. This should be something that takes a matter of seconds, but usually these things take many terminal windows and a considerable amount of time. Unimus turns the process of searching through your entire network's configuration into nothing more than a couple of clicks and a few keystrokes. Since Unimus already holds the configuration of your network devices for backup, you can easily search through all device configurations in a single place with enhanced capabilities like complex regular expression searches and time ranges, etc. Searching archive configurations isn't the whole story, though. Sometimes you need to know the state of things that don't live in the configuration, and for that, Unimus also has you covered. You can use Unimus to easily retrieve arbitrary command output across the entirety of your infrastructure. Through the Unimus interface, you enter the command that you would normally use to find out what you want to know, select the devices that you want to run it on, and Unimus handles the rest. Returning all the results to the Unimus console and grouping like results, making it easy to identify which devices are operating similarly and which may be an anomaly. With Unimus, the days of needing multiple console windows and connections to many different devices are over. Unimus automates this process for you so you get the information you need quickly and efficiently. Unimus runs on-premise, is multi-tenant ready, and supports more than 140 different network device types across over 90 vendors. You can get a free, no-obligation, unlimited license trial or schedule a short technical demo call at unimus.net slash nc. Again, that's unimus.net slash nc. I think one of the other things that I mentioned earlier is this idea of firefighting. It goes back to our conversation about having time to do engineering. I don't think a lot of us can solve this. Like, I think some of this is a culture thing. So if you work in an enterprise where all you're doing is firefighting, um, you're going to be resistant to change, right? The only time that change is going to come up is when the change required is the current fire. That's just the way that it works. And so, you know, if you are an IT manager or, uh, you know, a director or a VP and you're listening to this, if the culture of your IT team is constantly fighting fires, you need to fix it, right? Because you can't yep. adapt and change, and it's on you. Culture comes from the top. And, and, so, and it, yeah, will cause, it will cause absolute burnout, and you'll have high turnover. Unless right. you're in a place where you, <laughs> there are no other IT jobs. Or 
you're going to end up with the people who find that acceptable, which is not going to be your best at possible engineers, which only leads to pervasiveness of this idea that you're firefighting. And so I, I think, you know, like often we look, look to the people who are doing it well. And sometimes when you look at this, you have to look at the people who run networks as their core business because they're going to find the ways to do efficiency. So I look at like, you know, the big cloud providers and, and the web scalers. Um, they are very, very methodical about the way they build their networks. There are pods and design versions. So you figure out what you're solving and how you're going to build something, and that's version one. Maybe it doesn't do everything you want to do, but that's what we deploy until we figure out what version two is. Then once version two is ready, we don't deploy it across the entire world. We deploy version two in a test pod. We run it here for a while, see how it runs, validate it. And you know how much firefighting they do? Not very much, unless you're Amazon and everything comes melting down because of whatever it was that caused it to go melting down recently. But of course, there always will be firefighting to some degree. But their culture is not firefighting. Their culture is engineering. And so that is what you should be targeting. I, I don't know that you can get it that clean in an enterprise. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, it's not going to be, you know, I can build these pods or these modules. It's not always that way, but you can definitely strive to get there. And that's on leadership to really push. But I also think it's also on engineering to demand. Like if you're in a place that's firefighting, you need to be letting your management know that's not a good state and here's why. But as an engineer, I don't know how much, how much uh, influence you have in actually changing the culture. Um, you can be one voice, right? Like that's really what it comes down to. I think I think a lot of that is tied in with um, a couple of things, right? It's a methodical nature, um, and that is usually a cultural thing where you know you have a method for doing something. It has clear steps. Those steps, you don't go on to the next step until you finish the current step. Um, and what lends itself very well to that is the notion of cattle, not pets. Um, because as soon as you start thinking of something as special, then it gets its own aura about it that makes it different than other things. And if everything is special, well, if everything's special, nothing is special. But if everything is special, then you get to the point where, well, I don't want to change this because that, and I can't change this because of that. And it it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, but being methodical and thinking about the actual service rather than the server or the router, right, is, I mean, we all came up, probably came up that way, right? You know, well, I remember I think, very clearly that, that mindset. And I think this gets into, you're making a good point, Nick, because this gets into the fragility of networks, which is something I fight against all the time. There are certain types of organizations that are never, ever going to want to test their failover and test the way their systems interact and the way they work. And I find that those are the very same organizations that are stuck in firefighting. And there are some organizations that are going to, re, you know, going to do that and schedule that. And those are the organizations that are not stuck in firefighting because they find the problems ahead of time. And they don't take this idea that this can't ever go down. We can't ever take this thing down because we sold five nines, not, you know, not realizing that, you know, that, that is, that's a business thing. That's not a reality thing. That's a, this is five nines is here's how much I'm going to pay you if I don't meet my SLA. It's not that, the network is never, ever going to go down or a system is never going to go down. And, and I find that the organizations that subscribe to the idea that we are going to test our systems, whether, whether that's a network system, whether that's compute storage, whatever it is, those are the organizations that I think you have a better chance of, of embracing change. And, and that's a dynamic that I see that is fundamental to dividing those two because and it gets back to the fear of change or the fear of, you know, I'm going to lose my job or the fear of whatever it is in your organization that you don't want to be that person on the carpet explaining why this happened. But I think fundamentally, you have to be proactive about testing and implementing systems like you're talking about. And you can do it in, you know, in, in a um, in a lab way. First, that's what I do in my consulting. If we have a network that's really, really fragile, I lab the entire thing sometimes and say, okay, how can I break this in the lab and find out the problems with the running state so that I can be efficient in my maintenance windows? And I think that's the thing that we that we we struggle with, and I've seen a lot of organizations struggle with, is that they just don't take that viewpoint, and there's nobody to communicate that to the business leaders to say, this is why it's valuable to the business to to, to operate this way and to test failover at reasonable intervals doesn't mean you have to break it every week but you should be testing it quarterly biannually whatever is reasonable for that business so that you're not in that firefighting mode 
Yeah, I think a healthy skepticism for the way things are supposed to work is a good thing, right? So you should never believe, I don't want to say never, it's very rare that you should believe that something will work exactly the way the documentation say it's going to work, that your consultancy says it's going to work, that the vendor says it's going to work. doesn't matter, right? Always trust but verify. Have a little bit of skepticism. Test things out. Make sure it does what you think it does because environmentals are a very real thing. So the the more that sort of becomes the mindset, I think the more comfortable people become and, the, and they will become much more uh, willing to think about changing even small steps, right? Really huge shifts like tectonic shifts don't happen. How many times have you seen the ocean boil? Like it's little things. You change one little thing at a time, right? And then you become more comfortable over time. But it's in the running config, Nick. It's got to work that way. It's in the running config, right? It has to be that way. <laughs> right. right. Well, I mean, I, I agree with this idea of, of trust but verify. Um, completely, um, because the reality is, is that even if the solution that's in place works the way the vendor says it does, it's in your network. And oftentimes your network, I think Nick, we were alluding to this with the environmentals. Like there's just, there's unique things that can somehow maybe have evaded the people who coded that feature. Yeah, didn't, absolutely. They didn't think about that particular situation, or it's possible that you have some other unique component or some combination of components that just wasn't considered. And you don't know, and you don't want to be finding that out in the actual time. And, and so it's organizations that test, right. That don't end up firefighting because they're not surprised. When it does right. go down, it's like we know exactly how it's going to work. Uh, that's really rare. <laughs> it is incredibly it rare. Is. It's far too rare. It, it's yeah. sadly very rare. But I think that, you know, once you once you start to embrace that and realize like, okay, so if you think about how many times have I made a mistake, man, more times than I can count. Like so many times I've screwed something up, right? It's You have to be able to admit that. And once you can admit that, you can real, you know, you can sort of apply that to everything else. Like who, whoever wrote this software is a human. They've made mistakes. This cannot be perfect. Just because somebody says it's going to do this thing doesn't mean it's going to do this thing. More than one time on more than one platform, I've done show IP route blah or show route blah. And it says one very clear thing, but it's not doing that. When you start digging around in the actual hardware, it's got a completely different thing programmed into the ASIC, right? Trust but verify. Always go and look, right? Because well, everybody's – my favorite thing to say is everybody poops, right? Everybody <laughs> makes a mistake. <laughs> well, I want to qualify a statement that Jordan made because I would say it's very rare – in networks that do not operate in the outdoors. I think there is a very clear delineation between networks that are inside and outside, because when your network is outside and whatever kind of network you operate, that it has to be in the elements, you have no choice. Mother nature will test your network for you. Well, and so of the networks that are indoors, my statement about right. rarity wasn't about, wasn't about yeah. force though. My statement about rarity was selective people making the choices to do that. But I will say the people that have it forced on them more often will be more willing to operate. And a lot of this comes down to, I mean, let's just be honest. A lot of this comes down to design. We don't actually design our networks in a way where we can lose something critical and still keep operating. Right. Yep. And so like, because of the fact that we have these special snowflakes that exist that will never go down, it's the old mainframe mentality. Why would I need multiple mainframes? I have the mainframe It's highly redundant internally. How many people have single <laughs> cores in their network? My single core will never go down. It's built redundantly inside BS. Right, like I have a chassis. Will. My chassis is right. redundant. I've I've had right. maybe I, don't know, I haven't had it a lot, but I've had maybe six chassis backplane failures in my career. It does happen. Or, yeah, or somebody trips over the power cords, or you know, like yep. like there's any number of things that can happen that are not related to the internal redundancy of that chassis. There's and a so, bug in the code. There's a bug in the code that runs one control plane, right? Like, and so at the end of the day, like I think that, you know, like we just have to not have those special snowflakes. We have to test everything. Um, moving on to the next one here. I think that this is less, I think less pervasive, but I, I've seen it being a consultant going into organizations and that is stop playing the victim. Like you're not being victimized by any of this. You have control of your destiny. So it's not, again, I'm, I'm not pointing at a large part of the industry here, 
But if you feel like, you know, like the system is unfair and, and you just don't want to change because you've got your little fiefdom and I don't want to do it. Like you're not a victim, like, like get over that, just do it. And it really leads to this next one. All of these come down to removing the emotion out of the equation. It's really about data driven decision-making. And that is I've tested it. I know it works. I've tested it. I know it's going to deliver the value that I'm looking for, or it doesn't, right? I've tested it. It's not worth the ROI, you know, like whatever. Ultimately it comes down to the idea that we're making decisions that you can, you can get over that fear of change because you understand the technology, you understand how it's supposed to work in your network and you understand whether or not that's something you actually need to do. Like that's, that's the data driven stuff. And that all leads back to, if you can't do that, change is going to be difficult because there always is going to be some level of unknown. It's just, it's just there. Yep. Data driven decision-making is if I had to take one thing out of everything we've talked about so far, it'd be that. Right. I mean, I think it sums up everything, right? I mean, really when it comes down to it, that the fear of failure and the fear of change comes down from unknowns. That's, that's the big reason. Um, we can solve some of those unknowns, either by making sure that we have the skills that we need to be good engineers or to make sure that we're doing the right things when we're evaluating new technologies. But it's really about making decisions that are based off of data and not based off of inference and not based off of emotion. Like it's really just taking a look and making sure that things are what they're supposed to be. So we've talked about how to adapt to change ourselves. Um, I'd like to take just a, a minute or two and say a lot of us are in a position to influence change. And I think some of these rules still apply, but I think there's some unique things to influencing change. And I, I bring this up because I'm talking here with Nick and Kevin, both guys who've been in this industry for some time, who have the ability to influence change. I mean, Kevin, obviously you consult. Nick, you work on a very large, you know, a network where you're doing R&D and are trying to tell people what the right path is, right? So like, I think that there's, there's an art to bringing other people along who's resistant for change. I'm curious what, what you guys bring to the table for this. So I'll, I'll, I'll follow that up, your, your question there with my answer, which I think may surprise people. But I think that when, when you say, you know, decide what the right thing is, um, I think my answer will every time be, the right answer is the one that works for you, right? It's easy for us to sit up here on our high horse and say us, the figurative us, right? And say, you know, this is the this is the way, right? But really, the right way is what what you can one, what you can understand, what you can afford, and what you can support. And I wouldn't be, you know, so arrogant as to say everybody needs to run a giant open flow network because it is the way or everybody should deploy IPv6 because it may not work for them and maybe they can't support it. So I think, you know, when you when it comes to influencing change, I don't want to influence anybody, to be honest. I want to provide an unbiased, a completely unbiased set of data that somebody can look at. If they want to know my opinion on things, I'm never short on those, right? But like, really, you know, folks should should think about, you know, those three things. What can I, what do I understand? What can I support? And what can I afford? And then kind of move forward from there by just going through the data that's available um, themselves and applying those questions to it. So I'll, I'll say I don't disagree with anything you said. I think it's a very academic answer, which is a, which I think is fine coming from the guy who works in, in, in research networks. But I, I think that at the end of the day, I think that sometimes when we're trying to influence change, it's because change is needed, right? And so, you know, like if you're inside of your organization and you know, we'll take IPv6, for example, you know it's coming, you know we have to address it, that there's not really a business, you know, immediate business need, but you know. You know what's there, you know what's coming, you know what's something you should be addressing, and you should at least be having the conversation about whether or not you should be talking about it. How do you get it on the table with people? Like, how do you how do you get it so that it becomes something that you can have a conversation about instead of an immediate no, because there's no, you know, there's no money at the end of this, at the end of this trail, right? Like, like, like sometimes I feel like there's um there's a reason to be an advocate for something in an organization. Yeah, that's true. And 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 again, yes, you're right. I did give a very academic answer, and that was very much by design. <laughs> but you know, if if I personally want to influence 
something, you know, I will often take the approach of, I want to show you what I've done and I want you to understand what I've done. I will, I will share everything I know about it with you. I will never hide any of the, you know, any of the dark corners. I'll tell you everything I know is there, there is to know that I know about it. And I want you to be excited about it. Right. I don't want to say this is the, the, you know, you have to do this because what do most people do, especially highly intelligent people? What do they do when you tell them they have to do something? They're going to recoil and they're, they're not going to want to do it. Right. This, people, people this is the like IPv6 people. story, right? Like it everyone really came does. out and said, you had to do this. You have to yes. do this. The end is near. You have to do it right now. Right. And how well has that worked for us? It hasn't. Exactly. It right. needs to, people need to be excited about it. And I think the, the best thing I've ever seen to get people excited about IPv6 is the way Hurricane Electric did their certification process, right? It encompasses all of the things, right? It's multi-staged. You could do it at your own pace. It shows you soup to nuts from a host address to DNS. So, you know, you got uh, a host, a service, a network, a transport, it has all of the pieces. You get a certification when you're done with it. And if you go through the whole process, you get a t-shirt, right? What more things do, do geeky technical people need to get excited about something? Like that is absolutely perfect in my opinion. Do you still have your Sage t-shirt, Nick? I went through that one. I remember that was a great cert. That was a great fun thing to go through to learn IPv6. Yeah. It was very fun and it got me even more excited than I already was about it. And I think that is the key. As soon as somebody's not excited about something, it's work. And again, this is work for us, right? But like when something becomes desirable to understand, it becomes less about work and more about the process of learning. And that's a that's a huge thing. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, a bit of that is understanding motivation. So what you just said, right? Uh, Hurricane Electric understood your motivation as an engineer, right? It was an it was a, a way to learn. It was really not intimidating. Uh, maybe your motivation is a T-shirt. <laughs> it seems to work for vendors, right? At getting people to their booths or whatever. But, but like you get the idea. Like there's sometimes influencing change is 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 really working with somebody and not forcing it, but just kind of saying, "Hey, come along. Let me show you how it can be." <laughs> like exactly like you said, let me show you how it can be, and then you can make a choice. Like, I think that was right. that was the point in there is that it's not a force thing. It's a choice thing. And so part of it is leaving room, right? If you're just demanding it, people will immediately recoil. Um, and I will say with, with respect to IPv6, one of the things, because Nick and I, well, Nick's been around it way longer than I have, but I've been at IPv6 for, I don't know, probably about 10 years now. And what I'll say is that when you have something like IPv6 that is a fundamental technology for the entire planet and everything that we use and you're placing another fundamental technology that the entire planet depends on, I think it's okay to say, you know, we don't know. We think this is the way it needs to go, but we don't know for sure because this is going to evolve and it's going to change. And that's not the way IPv6 came into being. IPv6 was pushed very hard and it was, this is the way it's going to be. I remember I asked the question, you know, well, how are we going to combat the sprawl of the global table? Oh, well, that's never going to be a problem because everybody's going to have a 32 and it's going to be very small and nobody's going to need more than that. And now people throw slash 48s like Skittles into the global table and we just, you know, reached 100,000. We just broke 100,000 a few days ago. And when I first started, the global table was maybe 16,000, 17,000 routes. And now the IPv6 global table has the capacity to be a hundred thousand times more of a disaster than the v4 global table as far as size and resources and it's because we didn't know we there were things that we didn't know about how people were going to want to use it and how they were going to want to consume it and the recommendations around what prefix size should i be using what should i be giving out to my customers and a lot of the organizations um you know I, i've had a lot of very spirited discussions with some of the organizations pushing those and the people that are in those in, in that i build service providers and we've been trying to do vv6 and say look you know, the, some of the things that you guys are pushing, it's it's great in an academic sense, but it doesn't really make sense practically. And so a lot of these really hard and fast rules that came out in IPv6 all changed. And that and so that that to me, that kind of undermines trust 
Because when you come out very authoritarian and sure and confident and say, this is going to be the way it is, and then three years later, we're like, yeah, no, we're going to change it. And so that kind of, I think, turned off a lot of people into IPv6 because IPv6 continually was this, it has to be this way, no, it has to be this way. And so nobody, I think, really had confidence that everybody understood this is how you do it. And instead of taking the approach of, these are the recommendations we're going to make. We think they're good for right now. We know this is going to evolve. Go ahead and get it running in your network. I think there would have been a very different approach to people embracing IPv6. And then there was this kind of emotional, you've got to be V6 only and die on that hill. And you've got to get V4 out of your network as fast as you can. And in my opinion, that was the wrong way to do it. Because if you look at, um, if you look at the mobile devices, like Nick said, We've had them in dual stack for a decade now. It is the single largest connected group of, forget IPv6, it's the single largest group of connected anything on the planet by orders of magnitude beyond anything else. I looked this up for the IPv6 podcast. There are 7 billion connected mobile devices on the planet. So when you look at that, that's all run in dual stack. We have all that and it probably will be in dual stack for quite a long time. Now there's some things that are T-Mobile's doing 464XLAT. And there are sections of the networks that are starting to go V6 only because we finally matured enough to get down that road. But when you divorce it from the business case and from things that are reasonable and you just take this arbitrary line in the sand that I'm going to push this and it's got to be this way because the end is near. I agree that was the wrong stance to take. And I, I think that that is that more than anything, the attitude has hampered IPv6 adoption, less, much less so than the tech. That's absolutely true. I think that the, you know, I, I think my first V6 experience was probably 2002. And it was imminent at that point. It was already old. And it was still imminent that it was happening. And it was very much a, you have to do this. It was an extreme, right? It was it was presented as this extreme. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't totally done. The biggest detriment to it was that the hardware support wasn't there. Forget the software support, which was still in its infancy. The hardware support wasn't there, but it was still spoken about as if it was this mandate that you had to do, even though there was so much unknown about it. And now, you know, we still see some of that. And, and I think that's, that's not the, in my opinion, and this is, again, this is just my opinion. That's not the right attitude. The right attitude is at this point is it's, it's probably going to happen. It's slowly been happening under the covers. And the right way to think about it, and this is one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite shows, Futurama, is if you, if, if you do things right, then people won't be sure you've done anything at all. And that is how I tend to approach V6, right? Because if you phase it in, then it's, you know, it happens and you'll start using it by design and you won't even know you're using it. Like I'm V6 only right now, right? I've got NAT64, DNS64 running. It just kind of works. Again, I, it's small. It's in my home. But, you know, it, it, it. my family has no idea. I mean, they don't know how the internet works anyway, right? But like, if you do it right, nobody knows you've done anything at all. But if you dictate it as a mandate, it becomes rigid. And we need flexibility because we've had this other thing that's worked forever. There are a myriad of different ways to sort of prolong it. Right or wrong doesn't matter, right? I don't think there is a right or wrong. It's just, it's a, the, there are tools to make this last longer. So as soon as you start mandating it, same thing as before. People are just going to say, no, I'm not going to do that, right? I don't have a good reason to do that. Just because you say I need to do something doesn't mean I need to do it. Right. I, so I'm, I'm going to summarize or try to summarize here. I think that um, it's it's really about taking taking time to understand the motivations of the people you're trying to influence. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and I think that I think also part of it is, you know, understanding that there's a natural fear of change working through that. And, and so some of that is in the approach. It's not about forcing things. Right. A lot of it's about communication. Right. And so, you you know, you said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what I can do. And a lot of it, you know, taking into, into consideration is this idea of understanding who you're speaking to and what their motivations are. Also understanding that it's natural fear to change. Uh, oftentimes communicating and understanding is good, but dictating is not good. And I think that really is the last piece is that building trust. When you dictate, you erode trust. And so all of that is, you know, like you have to end up on the same side. 
You're never going to influence somebody because you're one side, they're the other side, and you force them to come to you. What you do is you right. say, let's come to the middle because I have something I think that's important to you. You're where you're at. Like, let me, let me help you educate you on what's going on and then come alongside me and we'll do it together. Like that's the way you get stuff done. Not the coming down with the tablets, which is why we keep coming back down to IPv6 because that's the way that it was done. And it's a great example of probably not the way you should do it because right. I felt like, I felt like the people who created V6, um, they wanted to fix a lot of the things that were wrong with V4, which is all well and fine. I think it's well intended. The problem is people had come to depend upon even those flaws in V4. And so what you're telling them is they can't do all the stuff they do now and, and that they're wrong <laughs> and you need to yeah. fix it. And it's like, hold on a second. Like, that's not the way. Um, that's not the way to win friends and influence people at Dale right. Carnegie's book, right? Like you, you come in and tell them, you know, that you're wrong and you need to come to me and do it the right way. Like that's never going to do it. I don't I know. I've had a lot of comfortable with old and new technology running together. That's another foundational point for me that we talked about on a recent IPv6 podcast with Nick Russo over an IPv6 buzz is that every technology that we've ever consumed always goes through a natural phase and progression, whether it's analog television to digital television, whether it was ATM to Ethernet, whatever it is, we've always run them in parallel and the old will eventually die off. And, and a lot of times it doesn't ever truly die off. It's just so minuscule that it's not impactful. And, and that's another big thing for me is, you know, people that have this idea that we're just going to, you know, rip out and go to this new technology and be all on it. You know, there's a handful of organizations that can pull that off because they have the resources. But I don't feel like that's the 99%. I feel the 99% has to be comfortable with the natural progression of tech and not have this idea that we're just going to rip it and replace it with something totally do new when you're talking about, like, you know, foundational core technologies. Yeah, change is iterative. Anyone who believes otherwise is a fool. Like change happens over time. It happens in slow chunks uh, and it happens without, you know, like the idea of a sea change or a flag day, like that's just such a super rare event. I know that they've happened on the internet in the early days and whatever, but like that in technology now is a fantasy. It's just not going to happen. So anything when you're talking about change has to coexist. I agree with that completely. Yep. And, well, guys, and you know, just just a one one more comment you yep. know the, uh, along the building trust lines and i agree 100% with kevin right as soon as you try to force something as a you know as a flag day you're setting yourself up for a whole lot of problems you probably don't need if you if you just phase things but as far as building trust goes like approach things as a partnership don't approach them as anything else right because everybody has something valuable to bring and as soon as you can recognize that uh, you being the, you know, as soon as a person recognizes that everybody has something of value that they can bring, whether it's expertise or experience or whatever, even just attitude, like you'll get a whole lot further, a whole lot faster. All right. I think it's a great place to stop. Um, so before we, um, before we exit out of this interview, I want to give you guys an opportunity to share where people might find you. Kevin, where on the internet are you? Uh, I'm at a few places. You can find me at StubArea51 on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn and at my company website, which is IP Architects, which is I-P-A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-H-S dot com. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. All right. Nick, how about you? Oh, I'm all over the place. Uh, I've got a Twitter. It's at Forwarding Plane. I occasionally blog on ForwardingPlane.net. I'm on the Network Collective Slack. I'm around. You're around. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So thank you all for joining us for this episode of Network Collective Podcast. Um, if you enjoyed this and want to find episodes of Network Collective, you can head on over to networkcollective.com. There you'll find our entire archive of episodes, as well as links to the various places you can find Network Collective on the internet. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast feed at any of the various podcast directories. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere else. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute and leave a review for us on iTunes. If you have a moment, that really helps others who don't know who we are to find us. Uh, for our video content, which is uh, a new push for us, you can find us over at our YouTube page. The short link for that is tnc.li slash YouTube, or you can just head to YouTube and search for Network Collective in the search bar. 
Um, if you subscribe and enable notifications, we're doing a ton of live streams. So we're doing like, a, well, we're targeting every week. We're not making any commitments there, but we're targeting every week for a live stream. We, uh, we're targeting Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern to try to keep it as consistent as possible. Uh, and so, like, we'd love to have you come join us on the live stream. Kevin was on the last one. Uh, giving us a hard time and providing some good insight as we were as we were chatting about the stuff we were talking about and so we'd like to we'd like to have you come along and the best way to know when we're live streaming is to go to youtube and subscribe uh we're also taking excerpts from that content and putting it out on youtube so even if you miss the live stream there's lots of great content uh, that's coming out in nice little short consumable pieces of video uh you can watch on your lunch break or you know as a break from work when you need to get your head out of whatever it is that you're doing uh, we have a few of those up there already, and those are going to keep coming out. So something to keep a look out for. Uh, we'd love to stay in touch with everyone. Uh, so we're on social media, uh, and that's where we announce what we're up to. So if you find us, we're at Net Collective PC on Twitter. Uh, it can be found by searching for Network Collective on LinkedIn and Facebook. And last but not least, if you're a regular listener, uh, could you consider being a supporter of the show? It's uh, five bucks a month, even less if you pay for a year up front. It really helps us pay for all the things that are required to make this happen. Uh, we want to keep delivering valuable content with a minimum of ads and direct support from listeners helps us do that. Uh, you also get some nice perks uh, by being a supporter. You get access to a great community of engineers on the Network Collective Slack, a private feed for the show that has all the advertisements removed, and Network Collective merch at our cost. So uh, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, thanks again to, to Kevin and Nick for, for joining the podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time.